Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by fellow podcaster Matt Grossman to talk about his new book, Red State Blues, How the Conservative Revolution Stalled in the States. This book is published in 2019 by Cambridge University Press and goes through a lot of data and some interesting analysis discussing how the Republican takeover of the states perhaps maybe is slightly overstated but I'm going to let Matt tell us a little bit about that. First, I'd like to invite Matt Grossman to talk a little bit about himself and how he came to this project. Hi, Matt. Hi, good to be with you. Thanks for joining me. I uh, took over a new role uh, at the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research, which is kind of the outreach vehicle between Michigan State University and the state government in Lansing a few miles away, uh, and did that at a time of increasing uh, Republican control and, and full Republican control in Michigan. And I wanted to see how the patterns that I had uh, been seeing in Michigan uh compared with uh, everything else happening nationally. And then the other way I got into this is I had written uh, a lot about the Republican Party having trouble at the national level in translating its campaign rhetoric into actual changes in policymaking. And I wanted to see, people kept saying, well, what about the states? What about Wisconsin, uh, Kansas, et cetera? And so I wanted to see if the, if the same problems uh, developed in the states or if they had found a way around them. And what you found in in terms of the book is that while there's been a lot of success and electoral success, um, is that the policy outcomes perhaps don't necessarily correspond directly with that electoral success. So I'd love it if you could talk a little bit or unpeel that onion, as it were, a little bit and explain sort of the potential disconnection there. Right. So Republicans had uh, quite an electoral run. They went from fully controlling three states in 1992 to 26 states uh, before last year's uh, elections. Uh, They went from controlling about 40 percent of the average legislative chamber to about 60 percent over that same uh, period. 
So even in a 50-50 national electorate, uh, they made uh, quite a few gains at the state level. But in terms of policy, uh, you don't see the sort of same overall conservative uh, trends. Uh, For example, the median state doubled its spending uh, over that same period and increasingly concentrated on education and health. Uh, Social issue trends uh, also on areas like gay rights uh, and uh, drug policy also uh, moved leftward. So it's not that they made uh, no changes. Um, I do find that Republican control was associated with fewer liberal policy changes or more conservative ones and uh, a slower rate of growth in government. Um, But they didn't really live up uh, to the rhetoric of the campaign trail about a smaller government that that does less. Uh, Over this period, uh, the size and scope of government were still growing. And then I also... Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, I also then try to look at the socioeconomic impacts. And I think one of the lessons there is that some of the places that they had been able to make a lot of changes, you're not able to to see that reflected in real uh, shifts in the socioeconomic trajectory of the states. Uh, so areas like abortion and gun law, where Republicans did make changes, you don't necessarily see, say, the abortion rate changing. Uh, in Republican states. And areas uh, like union policy, where there was a lot of change, you can see real effects of right to work in, say, uh, decreasing unionization. Um, But it wasn't implemented widely enough to sort of show big differences in Republican-controlled versus Democratic-controlled states' economies. And so in the in the book, you go through a lot of these different sort of components of policy. Um, and, and you sort of talk about um, a triangulating approach that you're looking at in terms of um, elections and policy. Can you explain to listeners a bit about what you mean by how you're approaching um, the sort of analysis? Yeah, so I started um, with just the basic trends uh, over time, things uh, that are easy to track uh, beyond the politics, like spending, uh, like counting up liberal and conservative policies, and then trying to to model uh, the extent to which changes in partisan control was responsible for those kinds of trends. Uh, But I I'm suspicious that we tend to count those things that are easiest to count, not necessarily those things that are most important. And so I also wanted to kind of track from a local perspective uh, what the biggest changes uh, that happened in these states or that were debated in these states uh, were. So I looked at history books on each uh, state uh, and I, I talked to political reporters in states that had moved towards Republican uh, control. Uh, in order to get kind of an on-the-ground perspective of what were the biggest things um, uh, debated and what were the biggest accomplishments and failures and some at least local explanations uh, for uh, those uh, difficulties. And there there were differences. So, you know, some of the, the findings um, uh, t- tend to go together. So, for example, both kinds of analyses show that it's really these size and scope of government changes that are harder for Republicans to make. Um, it is easier to pass these kind of small social issue uh, changes uh, than uh, to redirect uh, the role of government. Um, but some of them were different, especially when it comes to priorities. I think our efforts to kind of count up policies across the state 
tend to emphasize those that are kind of cookie cutter legislation passed in lots of states. Um, but the local uh, histories tended to emphasize these big fights over the state budget, mostly about uh, whether to tax more uh, and whether to spend more on these huge budget categories of health and education. And and in, in that regard, did you find differences across the states that had sort of shifted their political directions from Democrats to Republicans? Yes, I think uh, it's sort of easiest to think about in, in the South where, um, you know, there were solidly Democratic states that were nonetheless pretty conservative, both in policy and in their politicians. And so, as you might expect, you know, switching from conservative Democrats to conservative Republicans, in some cases, even the same legislator switching from one party to the other is not going to produce a whole lot of, of policy change. Um, and I, I certainly uh, found that. Um, but I I added to that uh, the a sort of a broader South and a uh, kind of rural state dimension where it's kind of places that sort of look like the South in their social conservatism and economic liberalism, where you also uh, tended to see a lot of Republican gains, um, but that were not necessarily associated with real uh, policy shifts. Then you had states uh, that are more swing states, um, like the Midwest, uh, that, that moved back and forth between Republican and Democratic control, but still saw shifts uh, toward Republicans over this period. And that's where you saw some, some bigger uh, potential changes, uh, like in Wisconsin. Um, but one thing that I point out about the Wisconsin story is that Wisconsin started as a very liberal state in economic policy, even though its public was pretty moderate. And so that really gave uh, Republicans an opportunity to shift policy more there uh, towards the right uh, to, to become closer to the median state in economic policy. Uh, so the biggest changes you saw were when you were really shifting from liberals to conservatives and when uh, Republicans had some ability to actually move a state more towards public opinion in its state. And so as I sit here in Wisconsin, and you note the Wisconsin sort of situation is a little bit of an aberration compared to a number of the other states that you're looking at. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about, you know, some of these high profile symbolic um, efforts also that we see um, some of the the politicians taking here in, in Wisconsin, obviously Scott Walker and the education unions. Um, but also in, in a number of states you had as well as here in Wisconsin, you had, you know, sort of walking out by opposition um, and fleeing the state. Um, and, and again, they're sort of, they're, they're not exactly the policy outcomes, but they are sort of symbolic moves. Um, and, and what place do some of those have in your analysis? So Wisconsin um, is uh, certainly an outlier in the extent of change. It's not necessarily an outlier in the issue focus of the change. So labor, for example, was a big area of uh, a movement. Um, it was really the only economic policy area where you saw Republicans, uh, states moving consistently uh, rightward. Um, education uh, fights were uh, also quite uh, common across uh, the states. Um, but uh, the 
in many places, the the kind of education uh, opposition was more successful uh, than it than it was in Wisconsin. Um, there were about six to seven states that had walkouts or large threatened walkouts, and all of those states actually changed policy on education to increase funding for teachers in response, even though it was mostly Republican states. Several of those states actually raised taxes in response to the teacher protests. So that was a sort of considerable responsiveness that we didn't see um, in, in Wisconsin. I think your point about the, the tactics getting more severe is certainly uh, well taken and asymmetric. That is, uh, Republicans um, tend to be more willing to change the rules to benefit uh, themselves, staying in power. Um, in de- The Democrats have a kind of a good government group constituency. And so, uh, for example, in my own state of Michigan, where Democrats have some chance to, to take over state control, they have already shifted redistricting to a nonpartisan commission um, with largely support of Democratic interest groups and voters. So that's not really something you see Republican states doing when they have a chance uh, to, to regain uh, control. So there is a difference in kind of uh, the, the tactical uh, extremism or the willingness to change the rules to benefit one's uh, own party, but it is increasing on both sides. And in, in this respect, I was also curious as I was reading through your book about, and you sort of make these, these, um, uh, sort of statements in the beginning and the end, sort of framing the analysis, the the sort of difference between what's going on at the federal level with regard to sort of a conservative party, in this case, the Republicans in the United States, compared to other conservative parties or other conservative movements in other countries, um, and, and also what is then also going on at the state level. Can you talk a little bit about that sort of broader perspective? Because I think it's also really interesting to understand sometimes um, some of these questions about, quote, success um, for the sort of campaigned policy advocacy. Right. So there's a global pattern uh, that government tends to grow in size and scope uh, over time uh, more than uh, contract. Um, and so that is uh, something that conservative parties have to deal with everywhere. Um, but most places in the world, they sort of accept the programs that have already passed and just kind of d- debate whether we should, how much and whether we should expand uh, government into new uh, roles. The Republican Party is pretty unique in the world in taking a across the board conservative perspective and claiming that it's going to actually retract uh, the scope of government, actually uh, decrease the size and scope of government. And so it has given itself a very uphill battle, something that really no party anywhere um, has achieved in, in industrialized democracies. Um, so that is, you know, it's not, it's not unexpected that that's a project that, that the Republican party was unable to achieve. Um, but it is quite dissonant with the campaign rhetoric that the Republican party advances, uh, and what they're actually able to, uh, achieve in, in government. Now, there is also a difference between the kind of, the research on state American state policy versus international policy in uh, the uh, timeline. 
internationally, uh, left or right parties did have an effect on the size uh, of government, but it was mostly an effect like from the 1930s to the 1970s. Um, you know, so every country expanded its welfare state, for example, uh, but some countries did it by only five or 10 percentage points of, of GDP and other countries did it by 30 or 40 percent getting up to you know nearly half the the role of the economy size of the economy and that was um in 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 large part or in part driven uh by whether the country consistently elected parties on the left or the right um and then since then there's sort of been less of an effect to left or right governance internationally um, because countries have sort of settled on their relative size of government uh, in the States, it's the kind of opposite timeline. Uh, studies that try to look at the role of parties in driving policymaking or the size of government show very little partisan effect at all until very recently, until you get to uh, the 1980s or uh, afterward, because we had a whole bunch of conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans. And so if you're looking broadly at the effects of Democrats or Republicans, you're just less likely to find them in the American states. So it's a sort of a weird pattern where uh, the parties started governing ideologically and very different in the U.S. states right at the time where internationally parties had less uh, capacity to make change because the size and scope of government were sort of already set. Uh, And I think that that is a big part of the story of what happened in the states. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And, and you also talk about the fact that a, a lot of the analysis with regard to sort of the impact of uh, policy development and and policy changes is not always as clear, in part because we see on the news high profile incidents, um, as opposed to, as you know, sort of a systematic understanding of what's going on. And so your book takes up trying to sort of, I guess, correct some of that. Um, Can you talk a bit more about how, you know, most Americans understand what's going on in the States and what is actually going on in the States? Sure. So the the media focuses on on political conflict. Uh, both sides want to sort of sell their their view and of uh, the and and criticize the other side, and so that's what makes a news story. Um, but and there are many things that are uh, big partisan divides. Um, but still, you know, most policies, major and minor, at the federal level and in the states, still pass with bipartisan support. Most major changes are are bipartisan uh, trends. Uh, We are still seeing, for example, criminal justice. All states moved in a more punitive direction in the 1990s. Nearly all states are now moving in a less punitive uh, direction. We see um, trends like early childhood education, where that might seem like a Democratic priority, but pretty much all states are now increasing funding for early childhood um, education. So there still are 
these bipartisan trends, um, and you know, they get uh, less attention uh, than uh, the the partisan uh, fights. Uh, the other thing I'd point out is just the partisan fights are more likely to be unresolved. <laughs> so if you're looking at, you know, actual policy change and its actual effects on the socioeconomic trajectory of the states, um, you, you know, you see a lot of partisan fights um, that, that don't get resolved and so aren't associated with real policy change. So uh, when states have divided government, for example, uh, like uh, Michigan and Wisconsin do now, you are uh, likely to see debates where it looks like a lot is at stake. Um, but if one side doesn't really win altogether, um, then, you, then you may not actually see those, those stakes um, uh, materialize as as we speak. Michigan uh, just wrapped up a year of budget uh, d- debates, only to conclude basically to continue status quo uh, policy and make no make no ma- major uh, changes, and and that is sort of a norm in the states. Um, one other just indicator I'd bring up of this is that. We have a lot of tracking, for example, of the American Legislative Exchange Council, uh, which passes um, uh, model cookie cutter bills across the states from a conservative direction. And it it did have major influence. About 1% of the bills passed in state legislatures came from these model bills created by conservative interest groups and legislators. But just as a point of comparison, um, other scholars have found that about 10% of the bills that pass in state legislatures are those requested by state agencies and pretty much passed as requested. Um, so that's just not going to get a lot of news. Um, I don't think that means that the ALEC bills are unimportant, um, but it's just a way of kind of putting that in in perspective, that a lot of governing is just sort of consensus items that are requested by state agencies or the governor or constituents um, that just get less attention. And so in, in this regard, as you sort of talk about First, there's this sort of status quo dynamic, but there's also a form of kind of gridlock or stasis um, in part because of of the sort of fights, I guess. You know, I'm sitting here in Wisconsin, you're in Michigan, got a Democratic governor and legislature that's controlled by the Republicans. Um, And so the question is, what's going to what's going to happen at the end of the year? He said, Michigan, pretty much here we go again. Um, and so is that the case across the states or is it just that you and I are sitting in two states where we're a little bit weird? <laughs> well, it's also just occurred in, in North Carolina where there was a big fight over, over Medicaid expansion um, that didn't materialize, a big fight over teacher salaries that's being postponed until next year, despite uh, a lot of vitriol and even the Republicans trying to pass a veto override while the Democrats were away and told there was no votes. So even when these extreme tactics uh, are used, often the result ends up being um, – you know, not much uh, change. And when there are changes, you know, big changes, they're sometimes reversed, like in Kansas, where there was big policy change, uh, but it, you know, was not, it it didn't sustain itself in the end, because even Republican politicians uh, were kind of unwilling to stick with it once they saw uh, the results on the ground. Uh, Unlike at the federal level, um, if you cut taxes in the states, uh, people are going to feel it because uh, education and health funding and transportation, these kind of big budget categories um, are going to be cut as a result. And and people notice that and, and there's a backlash. 
And and I wanted to ask you again, also, you sort of mentioned this in, in one of your most recent responses, but you talk about in the book that there, where there is significant change in at the state level, it's often bipartisan. And you note um, some of the changes, the shifts that were in the 90s with regard to criminal justice, and then again, a sort of res- response to that. Um, now, can you talk a little bit about how that has been shaking out in context of the Republican gains in, across the state houses? Yeah, so one area we, we could talk about as a Republican success story is the expansion of what they would call educational choice, charter schools and, and vouchers. Um, and this is sort of a good example of a real conservative policy shift um, in, in the states, um, but one that was quite bipartisan. Um, it, it sort of started more in Democratic states, um, but over time became more affiliated with Republican states. So by the time you get to the end of the period, it's a more Republican-oriented policy. Um, But most of the policy changes actually happened in the wake of President Obama's Race to the Top grant initiative. So we have what in some ways is the most, the the biggest success of, of the conservative revolution in the states, moving education policy towards uh, more charters and choice. And if you kind of look at the, the the dynamics of that, it mostly was a response to the federal government <laughs> under a Democratic president, um, for, you know, providing a competitive grant program to change your, your policies um, in, in that direction. So it was a success, but it required a lot of, of Democratic uh, help. Similarly, criminal justice reform it really could be kind of attributed, at least in, in part, to a, a real conservative move. Um, that is, it was core institutions like the Koch Brothers Network, uh, the Federalist Society, the American Legislative Exchange Council, uh, these sort of, you know, big conservative actors um, that switched their position on criminal justice and uh, achieved policy changes in states like uh, Texas. Oklahoma, Georgia, and eventually at the federal level under the Trump administration. So, you know, you could say, you know, great conservative victory. Um, On the other hand, it's a move toward the traditional liberal view on those policy issues. And it's just so odd in the context of the Trump administration to say, you know, the big victory is moving the country toward, you know, less punitive (laughs) policies on criminal justice. It's the truth, um, but it it just seems harder to kind of credit that to um, the conservative resurgence. And so I wanted to ask you, given that the, you know, sort of some of these examples of school choice or the criminal justice reforms um, as successes, what what and in your book sort of goes through some of these questions, what are some of the real, quote, failures or non-accomplishments of this um, sort of red state revolution? Well, I think the biggest is just the the size of government. You know, the government spending doubled. It's, it's concentrated in democratic areas. Um, the co- When cuts were made, they were often reversed quite quickly. They often were associated with big constituent pressure, pressure and protests. And so... You know, it's you just don't. It's just not very easy to um, cut spending or even 
uh, kind of slow the the growth of spending uh, below the the rate of of economic growth in a state. And when states get money, you know, through things like the tobacco settlement or the BP oil spill, they they tend to spend it. Um, it tends not to to be reflected in in tax cuts um, instead. So I think that um, is sort of the big failure. And then I think the other is the the inability to kind of move the underlying trajectory of states with the policies that they have passed. So, you know, abortion is an area where every red state passed lots of policies to try to um, lead to more restrictions. And for that to be a supremely successful policy uh, trajectory and to not actually change the abortion rate in in red states is just to sort of say that you know some of these underlying social indicators um, are not as easy uh, to shift uh, with with policy as we sometimes think. And and I, I mean I certainly understand with regard to abortion rate shifts um, that it it does not necessarily appear to be a sort of conservative victory. But if some of these laws are successful in overturning Roe versus Wade, would then that be considered in your analysis to be a success? Yeah, so it would be a, f- a federal success that would lead to uh, a lot of state change. And that is a good point, that a lot of this is just about the constraints of the, the federal government, right? The, um, you know, abortion and gun laws can change in every state, but we still have some pretty uh, strict um, barriers on how far states can go in, uh, in, those, uh, in those areas. Um, there are also differences in federal incentives and opportunities. So we haven't talked yet about the Medicaid expansion. Right. One of the huge, um, you know, in some ways, to conservative successes in the states in that 14 states still have an expanded Medicaid all due to Republican uh, opposition. On the other hand, 36 states doubled the size of their largest program in response to an offer, a good offer, but an offer from the Obama administration um, it, during the height of Republican control in the states um, and often with the support of, of Republican governors. So it, it is both a big conservative victory um, and one that sort of shows the the limits. You can stop the growth of government maybe for a while in some areas, um, but it's it's hard to turn down um, free money from the federal government. Um, and, and I wanted to just ask you one, one final question about sort of projecting forward. Some of the discussions um, in the book with regard to uh, sort of limiting the, the sort of liberal or democratic tendencies. Um, and my students are always asking me the conundrum of marijuana policy in the United States. Um, and you've seen sort of interesting areas where this policy is also connected to criminal justice reform in the states. Can you talk a little bit about what you see moving forward in terms of this policy area? Well, my favorite example of, of sort of the oddities of liberalism and conservatism in, in the U.S. states is that uh, policy has both been moving more punitive on tobacco and less punitive on marijuana over the same period by the same party, the Democrats, and by the same 
near same coalition of, of interest groups um, on, on the left. So you kind of have this, um, you know, and, and I do have, I have to deal with this in my analysis because, you know, by some definitions, reducing regulation um, on marijuana should be viewed as a conservative uh, policy. And so in some of my analyses, I do it that way. And in some, I associate it as a, as a liberal policy, as we would conventionally. And, you know, it doesn't change the results that much, but it is worth thinking through is sort of how does something become, uh, you know, affiliated with the, the liberal or, or conservative side um, in American politics. But uh, drug policy overall is is uh, just emblematic of the fact that uh, liberal trends in social issues continue in the U.S., um, even if it might seem like there's a standstill, opinions on social issues are moving leftward, and policy is moving leftward as well. And so... Given the expanse of your analysis here, which is great, this is really fascinating to sort of dive into the states um, and and various policy areas. What is it that you're working on now to follow up on this? <laughs> uh, I'm actually moving next uh, to a, a broader analysis of, of social science and uh, the the increases in data availability and methodological sophistication and what we are able to to say and not say um, as as social sciences uh, as social scientists um, in uh, with with our increasing uh, tool availability. Uh, so moving in a slightly different direction, uh, but uh, obviously I'm uh, following up on the, the role of the, the Republican Party in, in government uh, as well. Oh, okay. Sounds really fascinating. Will you come back on the New Books podcast and talk to me about it? Of course. And we'll make it your, I think, what, sixth visit to the New Books Network? <laughs> I think we're on number four, so oh, okay. come soon. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. I feel like, you know, I'm John Stewart or um, Saturday Night Live, and you get a prize after number five or something. I should. <laughs> so I wanted to thank Matt Grossman for being with me today to talk about Red State Blues, how the conservative revolution stalled in the states. And this is from Cambridge University Press in 2019. I assume one can get a copy of this book at the Cambridge University Press website. Any any brick and mortar stores you want to give a shout out to? <laughs> uh, should be available, uh, you know, online or or in stores. So, okay. uh, <laughs> thanks for joining me today, Matt. Thank you.